From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. And obviously, at this moment, there is only one contemporary issue, problem, and event. So that's where we are. I'm John Plotz, and our RTB guest today is the amazing medievalist Sita Shiganti, whose books include The Medieval Poetics of the Reliquary and Strange Footing. Did I get that right? Is it called Strange Footing still? Which is this great book about poetic form in the Middle Ages, understood as a multimedia experience shaped by encounters with dance. And Sita, I've loved talking with you about that project over the years. It's such a cool project. And so this is another installment of our Books in Dark Times series, which as you probably know by now, explicitly takes its inspiration from Hannah Arendt's Men in Dark Times, which proposes that even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination and that such illumination may well come less from theories and concepts than from the uncertain flickering and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and their works will kindle under almost all circumstances. So at this dark moment, our idea is to talk to people about what brings them some kind of illumination, some kind of comfort or joy. And um, so we wanna know that about Sita. Uh, we wanna know about you, dear listener. So um, have a listen and then ideally send us your own thoughts as well. So Sita, welcome. It's really fun to talk to you. Thank you, um, I'm delighted to be on the show. Cool. And so Sita, can I just start off by pointing out that like when we talked before, you really kind of opened my mind because we use the words comfort and joy as a sort of frame for this, but you talked about works that sustain and engage you. So is it, can I, do you mind if I just ask you to, to talk about that? Because that seems like a great way to start off. To, yeah, to I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little. Um, and I think that those terms are actually related to a way that I wanted to respond to your introduction, in fact, in which you, um, you know, in many ways are rightly saying that we are, there is one big issue that we're responding to right now, and we're kind of looking for um, possible ways of, you know, moments of illumination within, you know, within this very dark time, as you say. Um, and I, you know, when you initially invited me to speak on this show, one of my thoughts was that I would really like to remind everyone that in addition to the COVID-19 crisis that is happening right now, it's important for us to remember other significant phenomena that are, you know, that are occurring kind of within that context and the ways in which they speak to each other. I am a UC Davis faculty member, and some readers may be aware that the University of California has been involved in what is becoming a system-wide wildcat strike on the part of the graduate students right now. And so I've been very interested in the rhetoric that is emerging about the relationship between the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly the ways in which many universities, including the UC, have been responding to it, and what this means for us to um, see some significant changes in how we approach education and this kind of increased dominance of um, digital platforms in education, all of that, how that relates to some of the issues that had already been raised in the wildcat strike that have to do with teaching conditions and various kinds of inequities that, you know, that the graduate students and the undergraduates in the UC system are facing. And so in thinking about a book to talk about today, I wanted to look at something that would respond to all of that together and acknowledge that even though it feels like we just have one big issue that we're thinking about right now. It's important for us to understand that, you know, a lot of other kind of really important political work, labor actions, you know, have happened in the midst of these, these other sorts of world historical crises and that the relationship between those different phenomena are really important. 
I'm going to just provide a little bit more of a frame for the book that right. I really want yeah, to talk yeah. about, which is, um, so I, uh, the book that I chose to focus on is W.E.B. Boyce's uh, Data Portraits, Visualizing Black America, which is edited by Whitney Battle Baptiste and Rip Rusert. And it's, Sounds like perhaps a somewhat unlikely choice for a medievalist, which is how you <laughs> introduced me. And in many ways it is, but I was thinking about this actually and why this book spoke to me and what it had to do with my kind of larger, you know, intellectual persona. And one of the things that, that I realized in thinking about your question was that I do think that the books that sustain and engage me often combine different media. And I think that's always been true, you know, and so that could mean um, it, it, I think in my childhood, it, it, it did mean picture books, which, you know, which have left, you know, in, in which the visual medium has left really lasting impression on me in many instances. But I think it's also very related to becoming a medievalist, you know, um, which involves a book and manuscript culture that just understands the place of visual and other kinds of media within the book, you know, and how they operate very differently from how we might think of, you know, in, in, a, in a more modern context when we are asked, you know, what's a book that comforts you, we might often think of a novel or, you know, something where that pictorial element is not really a kind of fundamental component of it. And so I think, you know, and so a lot of my, um, both my interest and my training, I think really predisposes me to being really, again, sustained by the exercise of thinking about relationships between visual images and text in a book and kind of understanding, you know, what, what kind of truth is uniquely being communicated here through that interaction. And so that's the reason why I chose this book, which uh, for, for listeners who are not familiar with it, it collects a set of a little bit over 60 sort of poster boards, I guess, that W.E. Du Bois made in collaboration with a school of sociologists at Atlanta University, which were intended to be and were exhibited at the Paris World's Fair exhibition in 1900 as part of a component of that exhibition that was supposed to show its viewers something about Black life in America. Right. And, and so, Sita, so I'm sure our, our um, listeners know about Du Bois as the author of Souls of Black Folk, and they understand him as an incredibly important African-American intellectual, but can you fill in the back picture of his like relationship to academia or how he came to be working at Atlanta University? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's a good question. Actually, John, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of information about okay. that, but like, but what I do, you know, but what I, um, but what I do, what I feel like I can talk about a little is Du Bois's interest in sociology as a discipline. You yeah. Know? And the, the ways in which it, like many other kinds of academic disciplines, is, you know, has a presumption to subscribing to certain kinds of hegemonic methodologies. And Du Bois was very interested in interrogating some of those assumptions behind disciplinary method and sociology that would make it a more just field and one that, you know, that could actually act towards racial justice and economic yeah. justice, you know, in, in a different kind of way. And I think, you know, the World's Fair opportunity, um, th this, this was not the only way in which Du Bois was engaged in that World's Fair. He consulted on other, you know, other aspects of it as well. Um, and I think it's this this interesting moment of Du Bois kind of on the one hand, you know, wanting to um, present a certain kind of picture of black life, you know, in, in the United States in some, in, in some positive and affirming ways that were, you know, that, that may have been the kind of traditional way of thinking about this, but also wanting yeah. to be really clear about how to, um, you know, how to manifest these social inequities and to, and to make very clear that these, that these inequities are systemic and are not derived from the kinds of racial hierarchizing, you know, um, that many of the, uh, that many of the American and European visitors to the exhibit might have, you know, a, a, that might have been an assumption that many of them brought along. And so that's, I think that's something that was really totally. important to him and, to undermine. 
Cool. And so see, just I, I, as I was frantically Wikipediaing as we were speaking, and I, I, I was just trying to figure out the chronology. So Souls of Black Folk is actually three years after these uh, diagrams come out. And his first couple of books, The Study of the Negro Problems and the Philadelphia Negro, oh, and The Negro in Business, those are all sort of more sociological books that he was publishing like pre-1900. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was studying in Germany. He got a PhD at Harvard, I think. I think he was the first African-American to get a PhD at Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to think about the analytic underpinning of a book, of, like of, of later work that is that is of course analytic but also so poetical and literary as well yeah so, and yeah. and kind of differently activist and focus yeah. i guess you know but yeah. i do but i do think that activist consciousness is there just again in kind of thinking about um thinking about scholarly methodology like i think you know i think to interrogate traditional scholarly methodologies is yeah. in itself a form of activism and it's also you know i think um one of the things that becomes evident in in some of these plates particularly in the earlier ones uh is his interest in the relationship between uh, black life in the united states and africa you know yeah. um and so that also so he's you know so he's he's really um I think throughout his career, he's kind of negotiating what that relationship should look like and how to understand Africa, how to understand, you know, the kind of um, uh, American consciousness of Africa as well as Africa on its own terms. Um, and so that, you know, that's also something that continues to emerge in his, in his political writing. That's great. So can you talk, is there, can you talk about one particular plate that you find uh, intensely engaging or sustaining, I guess? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, just to, to come back to our earlier theme, one of the things that really struck me about the collection as a whole is that, um, is how many of the plates uh, are interested in education. And in you know, um, and in statistics about um, about education, and so um, let's see. I'm just looking at plates 49 and 50. If you want to mm. kind of let you know, um, mm. so these are you know, so these are these are two juxtaposed plates in which um, we have these uh, in which he, Du Bois and his collaborators are experimenting with graphic art mm -hmm. to kind of make often quite trenchant points. About about um, what is happening for Black Americans and mm. what kind of impact education might have on them. Um, so he does, you know, in this plate that I'm looking at, um, he, he uses a very sort of limited color palette that's just black and red. And mm. so, you know, um, and, and so there's, he, he makes a lot of, or the whole group, I guess, makes a lot of really deliberate choices about how they are going to use color and contrast in color to, um, to show both the existence of inequities and the extent to which Black Americans um, have uh, have really um, engaged themselves productively in opportunities that are there when they are provided, you mm -hmm. know, um, to um, yeah, to you know, um, to, to to sort of uh, enter into society in a different kind of way, to you know, to to combat the dispossession that they um, you know that, mm. that, that they've found themselves placed within. Um, and you know, there's a there's also a very interesting chart about um, illiteracy, about the illiteracy of Black Americans in comparison to other countries. And that one also, you know, it, it uses color in this really striking way by by singling out um, the bar that represents Black Americans as opposed to all these other countries. So so in one sense it seems distinct, but in another sense, the way that the bars are arranged on the page, it becomes very clear. And I think this is a pointed comment to viewers at the you know at the Paris um, exhibition. 
that there are many other European countries that have much higher literacy rates, you know, yeah. um, or lower literacy rates, you know, um, and so it's, it's again, this attempt to use these nonverbal means, you know, um, very subtly, but very powerfully right. to, uh, to, you know, to, to combat various kinds of um, systemically generated perceptions. Yeah. So, so Sita, you're, I want to come back to that point you made earlier about being a medievalist, ergo, you're someone who thinks about, uh, I think, I guess, ekphrastic is the wrong question, but the, you're thinking about the, um, the symbiosis or the interplay between the visual and the textual. Do you think, do you, when you pick up this book and you find this book engaging, is it engaging to you because it seems to indicate a way forward in which like the modern world could do the same thing that those medieval texts did that you like so much? Or is it uh, more like a path not taken? Like you feel like that it would have been great if what Du Bois did could, you know, continue to define scholarship, but it doesn't. Like, how do you think about this yeah, book? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, th I think I'm sort of ever the optimist and I'm always kind of hoping uh -huh. that, you know, um, that anything that, you know, um, that allows us to think in some new interesting way could yeah. be a path forward to, you know, to, to something better. And I think it's kind of hard to kind of carry yourself along day by day without, you know, without yeah. thinking about that. And I think um, for me and, and your, your question about the, the medievalist training and what that brings to, yeah. you know, to this inquiry um, is I think an important one for me and something that I thought a lot about. And I think for me, it, it boils down to this idea that, that um, medieval, cultural productions like manuscripts that have pictures in them or uh, or wall paintings that you know that, that have poetic text at the bottom and images at the top um, they create these really interesting opportunities to um, find asymmetries and disorientations within what look like apparent symmetries I think in in ways that you know um, working in a single medium is you know uh, is it, it's not as possible to do and that's a lot of what the book strange footing that you mentioned was about you know um, particularly because dance is a um, is an art form, particularly early dance is an art form that people tend to associate with, you know, harmony and celestial spheres and all that stuff. And I was really interested in looking at how represent multimedia representations of dance and mixed media representations of dance were able to kind of cast into relief for us all of these little disorientations and asymmetries and slippages that happen within something that looks, you know, um, really uh, something that has a lot of periodicity and a lot of symmetry, you know, and, and visual harmony. And um, that I think is what really helped me to approach the Du Bois because, you know, partly what they're doing is experimenting with ways to make um, data visualization really beautiful and harmonious, you know, um, and they succeed in, in many different respects. They have all kinds of really interesting kind of graphic experiments they do with mixing typefaces and with changing Bar, you know, uh, changing bar graphs into spirals so that a, you know, so that a graph that would ordinarily be a bunch of straight lines becomes something kind of circular wow. and yeah. curvilinear. Wow. So, you know, yeah. so there's a lot of um, really, really uh, stunning visual experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for me, what that really opened up for me was the ability to see how carefully and how brilliantly these, these boards, these placards are drawing attention to and sort of non-verbally commenting on all of these disorientations, inequities, asymmetries, you know, things that, you know, injustices, irritants, all of these things that, you know, that, that keep this society from being what it is, how, you know, how they are actually rendered even more powerfully through the means of these very symmetrical kinds of visual images.
it's, it will be a little surprising to anybody who listens to this who actually knows me and I chose this book because really I'm a poetry person. You know, yeah. um, I like the fact that I didn't choose a poetry book is, is significant in some ways, but I think it yeah. is because like you asked me to think, you asked me to really sort of, you know, think in that most inward plane about what kind of thing yeah. actually, um, you know, I, I respond to in some very deep way. And I really think it's pictures, you know, or, yeah. or like the relationship of text and pictures, you know, yeah, which yeah, obviously yeah. there's poetry that, you know, that it, that involves that also, but a lot of it is medieval poetry, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting. I actually am, I'm waiting for my first poetry discussion. Like I keep, I keep thinking someone's oh. going to talk about Auden or Shakespeare or Wyatt or anything, but you know, so far I've, I've asked a couple of people and they've just like swatted it away. So really? it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's fast. See, and now I'm thinking I could also have talked about Charles and Crusade. A lot of people I've talked to have mentioned PG Woodhouse, for example. So clearly like there's oh. one huh. set of people who are just kind of diving into like comfort food, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And that clearly does not seem to be your impulse at this moment. And so that is interesting to think yeah, about. I yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I was, you know, and I, I was thinking about this because I was also, I mean, I, you know, after listening to the talk you had with Alex Starr. I was thinking yeah. about like other directions this could have gone in, yeah. you know, what I could have done. And I, I, I definitely understand that impulse um, to turn towards particularly novels. Again, I think just because, you know, there's this way in which they create this other world for you to believe, yeah. even if it's a very realist, you know, kind of, you know, even if it's a very naturalistic kind of world, you know, yeah. the, the impulse to like, I, like one of the novels I was thinking about was something like Anna Karenina, right? Yeah. Where, you know, like you get to the end of that novel yeah. and like you're sad because you, there yeah. you were in this world with these yeah. people and you thought you were yeah. part of that world and yeah. now it's over and what are you going to yeah. do next? And, you yeah. know, I, I yeah. definitely remember feeling that even reading it as a 15 year old, you know, um, right. so back to the children's book right. theme. Yeah. You know, and you're um, saying, and you're not saying sad because of what happens within the book. You're saying sad. That no, just, just that you're, yeah. yeah, that, that, you know, that that was a, yeah. a finite world that had an ending or that, you know, or right. that if it does go on, you don't get to go on with it, you know, um, like that. Yeah. I remember just feeling very sad about that, but um, I, think I think that's maybe, one of the reasons those Narnia books feel so manipulative at the end, <laughs> because you know what I yeah. mean? Because the narrative right, right. arc insists, okay, it's so wonderful to be in this other space, but we know how that works. And then the last battle just kind of twerks that and says, well, yeah. Susan is bad because she's not a good Christian girl. She gets expelled right. and the rest of them just get to go on and on into the inner Narnia and the inner, inner Narnia. And you just look, yeah. oh, what a rock, you know? Yeah, it's true. And it's yeah. true that I think, you know, the, the Narnia books, um, kind of return us to the medieval theme again yeah. know, in a lot of ways, just because yeah. like that was, that was an important mind for, you know, for Lewis and coming up with a lot of the, that yeah. imagery and those traditions. And I do think, you know, just to come back to your question about, you know, the choice, like what kinds of books I choose, you know, yeah. um, I, I do think a lot of it, again, it does have to do with the fact that when you read a lot of medieval literature, you aren't really expecting it to do the same thing that a 19th century novel is expecting, you're expecting a 19th century novel to do. I mean, in a lot of ways, it, you know, it is always going to feel like a pretty alien world, what you're looking at. I've never had that experience. You know, I, I, I don't feel immersed reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in the world of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And maybe right. there are other medievalists who do, um, I've never been one of those medievalists, you know, like right. I'm very conscious of that being an English tradition that I'm not really part of. And, you know, and so I, so I, um, Interesting. Yeah, and so, so I don't, yeah. yeah, so I just don't, so, so I, so in thinking about your question, I wasn't really bringing that set of expectations to the books I was thinking of. I was think I was bring what the, the set of expectations I was bringing had more to do with what is going to allow me to 
see something interesting and engaging that might provide a way yeah. forward out of many of the crises that we're facing right now. Yeah. yeah. I think again, like one of the reasons that I'm, I, I am really drawn to Du Bois is that I like, I really like to think kind of meta discursively and methodologically, you know? And so for me, like, for example, as I was talking about before, like for me the you know, the method of trying to do what a medieval reader does with a kind of multimedia text like that, is a helpful method to me for thinking about like what I could um, draw from what Du Bois and his Atlanta School of Sociologists are doing here yeah. that might be useful to think about. And so I so I really tend to kind of think more in those um, sort of more the back of the tapestry than the front of the tapestry, I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah, the back of the tapestry. Oh man, I love back <laughs> of the tapestry analogy. <laughs> that's the that's the heart of uh, my favorite book, House of Mirth, where they say oh, book, yeah. Lily Barth is behind the tapestry yeah. where the knotted ends hang. Yeah, Wharton is actually. I mean, you know, in, yeah. in your in your question about sort of categories of those kinds of books that are yeah. you know that that can be um, comforting that way. I mean, Wharton is. I mean, Wharton is another one, but you know, those books are gut wrenching. But, but oh, yeah. there's also something about them that. Um, so comforting yeah. in their gut wrenchingness. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I guess that's right. I've, Which ones are you thinking of? Um, House of Mirth, Age of Innocence. Age of or, Innocence, really, but yeah. also like Ethan Frome. I really, you know, oh, like Jesus. even, even oh, something God. like Ethan Frome is just I know. Tell me now. Such, they're such yeah. difficult. They're such difficult books. But she, you know, like I just kind of um, she was, you know, and she was a super problematic figure herself in many ways. But you know, she just had a really interesting eye. Uh, you know, I, again, like these are they're very visual books. You know, and and everybody like. I'm the only person who liked that Scorsese adaptation of the Age of Innocence. I'm oh no, sure. no, I'm with you. I thought that was great. Did you like it? I, I thought totally it was agree. really good yeah. because I really felt yeah. like the thing that yeah. that adaptation did was it 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 tried to inhabit her eye, you know, like it really, you know, like it, yeah. it was, it was very attuned to what particular kinds of visual details she noticed. And it, and I think it did a really nice job, like taking those visual details to produce this reading of the book and to kind of emphasize this idea that to emphasize Newland Archer's blindness, essentially, that, you know, he's thinking that he sees things that other people don't see all along, when in fact, he's right. failed to see something really important that everyone else basically saw the entire time, you know, um, yeah. and, and I think the, I think the, the visual reading of that in a way that Scorsese sort of lit and blocked the whole thing, like, I thought so, that worked really yeah, well. Yeah, not only am I with you, but are you also a fan of the Jane Campion portrait of a lady? Because oh, I think I've never seen it. Oh my God, I it love it for the same yeah. reason. Like, it just travels with, um, lines of sight so incredibly like it just sits you in Isabel Archer's ignorance and in her moments of illumination and it's I just love it's like a very particular and sort of torqued account of the novel but I think it's amazing you know yeah. I, and uh, I yeah and I think line like lines of sight is an important phrase because I mean again just I, I'm trying to think as we're talking about you know all the different things that I would like to say about how amazing these Du Bois, you know, these yeah. Du Boisian um, uh, objects are. And I think that idea of line of sight is also really important and that, you know, and the, the introductory matter to the book talks about, a lot about um, how he is really anticipating and ahead of certain kinds of modernist aesthetics and, you know, and the ways that they are um, experimenting with lines of sight and with proportion yeah. and, you know, um, and, and kind of mixing different, uh, different kinds of um, uh, textual expression, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, and I, I think the, the subtlety of that to, you know, to, to make these points about really glaring systemic inequities um, without, without making them verbally, you know, mm -hmm. um, it just, it, I, I think that's, you know, that, that's also something really powerful that needs to be acknowledged about, about what Du Bois is doing here. Yeah, well, so, I mean, boy, see, that's a whole nother conversation we could have because it sort of relates to 
a way of thinking about those debates uh, around early film where Eisenstein is championing montage and you know people like ben, uh, like Bazin are championing are championing hard word to say champion championing uh, deep focus and so you think about montage and deep focus as being alternative accounts of what the rectangle of the film frame can do but maybe we need to think about those other kinds of lines of sight as well as you know another possibility that's enabled by the rectangle of the printed page um, so yeah I mean 1900 is a really exciting moment for how visual and textual are supposed to interact because yeah it turns you know, out I mean that's the thing like this, this is yeah. really out of my field you know, so, like, yeah. so like I, I feel like I don't I don't have the kind of rich context that you do for thinking about what 1900 means you know um, yeah I'm just sort of looking at this one particular instance as, no as it's great I mean there's a great book by Linda Need called I think maybe the speed of the moving image or something where she's just mm -hmm. interested in how visual materials can be so readily put before the eyes of audiences by the end of the 19th century because of public technology changes and you know the implications of that for yeah the visual and the textual going together maybe in ways that do revert back to medieval patterns but. yeah I, and I think that that would because I again you know to come back to the question you were asking before about William Morris like I do think that sort of dichotomizing impulse between one kind of temporality and another like I think that's a very that's a kind of modern limitation you know yeah. um, that that in fact I, I don't you know I and, and I think maybe and maybe that is one of the other things that I find so um, compelling about the Du Bois is that I think it's not you know it, it's it's not really subscribing to either a sort of serial form you know um, or a uh, or an attempt to kind of grab you instantaneously with something visual I actually right. don't think either one of those things is going on you know um, I think it's actually finding this way to create a sort of you know interwoven narrative um, that right. you know that, that is that is get, that gets you to experience it in time in a much more complicated way yeah yeah so just as you know I feel like one of the big things that we debate now is this whole question of like how to lie with numbers um, uh, and maybe this, there's another counterpart to how to lie with them, which is like how to tell the truth with pictures. And uh, you know, yeah. that's a story that we are seeing increasingly in the 21st century. And yeah, so, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it comes back to, you know, we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but it, you know, it, it comes back again to this, um, all of these questions about uses of data and how we educate each other also, right? You know, and this, you know, this kind of, um, uh, this, false sense uh, and uh, there's a great piece about this that we can put the link up to somewhere that you know that, that makes yeah. this point that um, this turn during the COVID epidemic to um, instruction that is digitally based and that is you know and that is kind of data driven in many ways you know it, it creates this false sense that the um, the format in which that instruction takes place because it's basically a stem based format in a lot of ways it's neutral right and so you can you know you can communicate any kind of content in it neutrally but of course it's not neutral right I mean there's all kind you know there's all kinds of other uh, you know underlying ideologies yeah. for those kinds of platforms and you know and concerns around surveillance yep. and concern you know all, like all, all kinds of ways in which the the, 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 the platform of education that's been chosen now that, that is apparently a sort of default you know um, is actually not a neutral platform at all and so I think you know the Du Bois um, also does a really interesting job kind of foregrounding how 
this, these, these acts of converting data in various ways, or these acts of sort of presenting what um, would seem to be uh, objective or quantified data, you know, are, are always kind of, you know, ideologically driven and, and, and are, you know, are, are never just um, sort of neutral formats. Yeah. Um, okay, well, Sita from one chicken lover to another, I have to <laughs> thank you, that was amazing. And I'll just uh, quickly read the credits and say that recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Cheslow and Barbara Cassidy and sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. And we always wanna hear from you, especially now with your comments, your suggestions, your criticisms, and also the books that you are reading at the moment. Uh, so email us directly or contact us via social media or a website or just using the, uh, the uh, hashtag books in dark times. And so if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And please check out the other Books in Dark Time conversations, including with Alex Starr, Martin Kuchner, uh, Carla Rotella, and uh, Elizabeth and I also have one, which was extremely fun, um, which was also about the late 19th century. So Sita, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Yeah, and thanks to you all for listening.